The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Tonight we continue a series in the book of Esther that Pastor York started two weeks ago. It's a privilege to come before you tonight and read with you the word of our God, uh, the word that he's given to us to instruct us in who he is and how we might find salvation in Christ. And we hope that that will be our focus tonight, even as we look to the Old Testament. If you would turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter 2, and we'll read the entirety of Esther chapter 2. Uh, together. So follow along with me. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him, and she won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being twelve months under the regulations for the women, Since this was the regular period of the beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young women went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, in the morning she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus in his royal palace, in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. 
And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. And he also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now, when the virgins were gathered the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Would you join me in praying as we look at the word of God? O God, our Father, our Savior, our Redeemer, who has revealed yourself to us in your word, we thank you for the gift of the scripture, a gift of your revelation. We pray that tonight you would point to our sin and point us all the more to our Savior, Christ Jesus, that we might find salvation and joy in his presence. We pray this in your name. Amen. As you may remember, two weeks ago, as Pastor York began this series, we witnessed a display of stunning excess in luxury, feasting, drunkenness, and pride as King Ahasuerus threw a six-month banquet. And if six months wasn't long enough to feast, he threw an extra week-long banquet so that he could celebrate the greatness of his celebration. In the end, however, Ahasuerus, coming to the end of that week, was left not basking in the pleasure of what he had just uh, accomplished in throwing this feast, but rather to deal with the consequences of his own rash, drunken, and demeaning demands on his wife and Vashti, which left him queenless. As we come to the text for tonight, we read that Ahasuerus' anger had abated toward Vashti, and most uh, commentators look at this uh, passage as coming after a period in the life of the king Xerxes. Most believe that the six-month banquet that he threw was a banquet that the historical king Xerxes threw before launching the greatest and largest expedition, military expedition in the history of the ancient world, on a few small city-states in Greece. Unfortunately, after five million men were marched by King Xerxes into Greece, a few thousand Greek soldiers beat his army, and drove him back to Persia. And you can imagine the humiliation that Xerxes would be feeling after seeing his majestic army defeated by a few men. On his return, however, he's not welcomed into the arms of a king or, or a, queen, excuse me, a queen or a wife or a family, but rather is, is called to remember the fact that he had himself put away his queen. And so... His anger abates, and he remembers uh, what he has done. In this context, the king's young men are quick to offer a solution for the comfort of their king. Let young women be gathered, that the king may choose a new queen. It should not uh, pass us by that in chapter 1, it was the king's wise men who counseled Ahasuerus that he should beware of the example that he and Vashti were setting for the provinces. Now in Chapter 2, it's not the wise men, it's the king's young men who come up with this solution to gather beautiful young women from throughout the empire uh, to uh, come up with this contest in which uh, he can replace Vashti and uh, find a new queen. 
The luxury, the excess, the immorality that was described in chapter 1 continues with this pattern here in chapter 2. And it's on full display as Ahasuerus lays out this method for finding his new queen. In fact, from the first verse of Esther all the way through the first chapter and into the second chapter, through the fourth verse, this book has been one chronicle after another of the wickedness and immorality of the pagan culture of Susa. The practices of this Persian culture, the sinfulness that pervade the empire, and particularly here in the capital city of Susa, is on full display for all of Esther that we have read so far. But now in verse 5 of chapter 2, the narrative suddenly introduces the crux of the question of Esther. For here in the midst of this pagan culture, this immoral society, lives a Jew named Mordecai. In the midst of this citadel of sinfulness, this pagan revelry of immorality, lives a man of the people of God named Mordecai and his cousin, Hadassah, or Esther, whom he is raising. And the coming events of the narrative are quickly predictable because we've just heard that the king is going to be searching the entire kingdom for beautiful young women. And here, right in the citadel of Susa, living right outside the palace, is Esther, who is described as both beautiful and lovely to look at. And so we're not surprised to find in the next few verses, in verse 7, that uh, Esther herself is gathered with the other beautiful young women into uh, the harem of King Ahasuerus. According to the historian Josephus, some 400 beautiful women were gathered to King Ahasuerus for this competition uh, for, for the queenship under the custody of Haggai. And yet, while the narrative is somewhat predictable that a sexually driven king should be interested in in beautiful young women, the story is shockingly and unexpectedly wrong at another level. For here is a Jew, one of God's own covenant people, putting up no resistance at entering into this high-stakes beauty contest, this ancient real-life edition of The Bachelor, casting her lot for the ultimate prize of marriage to a pagan king. The narrative offers two more troubling comments as well. First, at the urging of Mordecai, Esther says nothing about her people or her heritage. This means she conceals who she is ethnically, but it also means she conceals who she is religiously, who she is as far as the God that she worships. All of this, Esther, along with Mordecai, say nothing and conceal in this context. Additionally, Esther's success in this queenship contest uh, is described in the following verses, but we note that her success comes in large part because of her compliance with all that is asked of her. She wins favor in the eyes of Haggai in verse 9, and in the eyes of all who see her in verse 15, and then finally in the eyes of Ahasuerus himself in verse 17. But why does she find favor in everyone's eyes? And is it a good thing for Esther to be approved accepted, admired by the keeper of women, by the people, the beauty experts in this pagan culture. Of course, part of Esther's favor would come naturally because she's good-looking. We might anticipate that uh, from later in the narrative, she's of good character, she's obedient, she's compliant. But that's exactly part of the problem, is her compliance here in this context. In fact, the text tells us not only does she please Haggai, but she wins favor with him. To win favor is a very active verb here. It's a much more active term than just finding favor because you have good looks. 
As one commentator puts it, Esther works for this promotion in the house of women by fitting into the agenda of the Persian Empire. She is willing to let the empire define her reality. Resistance is not high on her agenda at this point. On the contrary, she seems content, even eager, to be assimilated into this program. Even as Queen Vashti is disgraced and humiliated because she's unwilling to follow King Ahasuerus' demands, so Esther now is elevated because of her willingness to be compliant with the king's demands in this contest. Now, we might ask, well, what do we really expect Esther to do here? Surely Esther has just been taken by force. She's been brought into this harem against her will. What, what do we expect her to do? Say no to the king and get, you know, uh, find her way to the gallows? Is that what we would expect of Esther? Well, perhaps not, but maybe we could take a quick comparison to another Jew living in uh, the royal palace of a pagan king. In the book of Daniel, Daniel is also led captive into uh, the city of Babylon. He's taken to the court of the king, and he is assimilated into the pagan culture of Babylon. He is taught the education of the pagans. He is fed the food, or uh, they try to feed him the food of the pagan king. They are trying to make him a wise man of the Babylonians. And while Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are willing to go uh, to a certain extent to be uh, obedient and to, uh, to do what they're asked, they are not willing to do what brings them directly into conflict with the laws of their God. And so uh, we know that Daniel meets with his advisor and while finding favor of him, negotiates a compromise where he does not have to eat the food of the pagan king and where he can obey the laws of his God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, while raised to high positions because of the learning in which they, they gain, are not willing to obey the king when it comes to breaking God's command against idolatry and worshiping and falling down to the idol. Daniel lets no edict of the king stand in the way of his faithful prayers to his God. And these examples of Daniel and his friends and their response to the pagan culture stand in stark contrast to Hadassah, to Esther, the Jewish girl here who willingly complies with the pagan diet, the pagan beauty treatments, and the pagan game that leads her right into the bedroom of King Ahasuerus. As uh, a result, instead of the book of Daniel, in which, if you will remember, three times the pagan kings of Belteshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar break out into praise to the God of heaven because of the proclamations of Daniel and his friends. Here in Esther, the God of the Jews is invisible to the narrative. He's invisible to the people around them. Of course, this comparison raises important questions for our lives as well. For the situation that Daniel and Esther find themselves in is not all that different from the situation we find ourselves in today. Surrounded by a pagan culture. Living in a culture that increasingly delights in sin, excess, and immorality. And while the material excess and sexual revelry are celebrated and encouraged around us in much the same way that this ancient pagan culture of Persia would have done. And we are called to navigate this scenario by pursuing faithfulness in a way that makes known the glorious name of our God rather than hiding him from the culture around us. As we work for such faithfulness, there are at least three wrong responses we could take to a living in a sinful culture. I want to look at those three wrong responses briefly. First, we should not respond 
to living in a sinful culture by adopting our culture's goals, practices, or expectations as our own. Esther was immersed in the environment of Susa. And here in chapter 2, she joins the Persian girls in pursuit of the king's love, willingly following the customs and practices of the pagan culture at the expense of the laws of God that he had given his people to keep them holy just as he was holy. She hides her commitment to God as a Jew, avoiding any unpleasantness or shame that might be heaped upon such an association which society did not look well upon. And though she wins the ultimate prize of becoming queen, even the prize was a betrayal of what any faithful, God-honoring Israelite would want for his daughter. But we should be careful about looking down upon Esther here. We must recognize that the call for us to assimilate the desires, practices, and patterns of our culture is also incredibly strong. In 2010, David Brooks, a sociologist who writes for the New York Times, wrote a fascinating op-ed article that I think summarizes this call to assimilate our culture's goals and desires well. In 2010, actress Sandra Bullock had just won an Academy uh, Award for her performance in The Blind Side. You remember the film about the uh, Baltimore Ravens lineman uh, that she had played uh, the role of adoptive mother. But Sandra Bullock also in 2010 underwent a painful divorce with an adulterous husband who had abandoned her. So David Brooks poses this question. How many of us would be willing to take the life of Sandra Bullock? Would we be willing to undergo a painful divorce if we could have fame, money, and Academy Award under our belt in the process? Brooks writes that the vast majority of our society would take that life. But Brooks says that this is wrong. He says even all of the secular research about happiness shows that this is not a deal we ought to take. Brooks argues that schools, colleges, governments, and even many parents all reflect a drive to prepare people for money-making, career, and a success, rather than for building relationships based on trust, such as marriage, family, and friendships. He says our entire culture now has chased after the wrong set of goals. Now, what was more concerning to me is that shortly after reading this article, I brought it up for discussion amongst a group of Christian young people. And uh, to my horror, uh, I suppose, and in, in yet uh, understanding in, in other ways, there was much debate over whether we should take this deal of Sandra Bullock's. And uh, at least half of those in this group of, of Christian young people expressed their willingness to take the divorce if they could have the fame and the money and the Academy Award of Sandra Bullock. In other words, it's not just the institutions of our society, but even the members of our churches and undoubtedly ourselves find it easy to adopt the goals and desires of the culture around us. Two weeks ago, Pastor York warned us of the sins of pride, debauchery, and excess that abounded in Susa. But it is not just these big sins that we ought to be worried about. As Brooks suggests, any undue focus on money-making, career, success, is a betrayal of the way God has created us and what will ultimately fulfill us and make us happy. He puts it as relationships built on trust. Perhaps I might add relationships built on faith as the founding groundwork of all that we are. So here in chapter 2, Esther The call of the culture is perhaps even more subtle. For the culture delights in and praises the actions of Esther as she capitulates to its expectations. 
This is not just a matter of resisting temptation to do things that are immoral. It is a battle to deny the approval of a pagan culture whose goodwill and encouragement will be cheering us on if we will join them in their immorality. So we must surround ourselves with godly counsel. We must ground ourselves in the word of God. We must daily commit ourselves to prayer that we might be surrounded by influences of the kingdom of God, not the, kingdom, uh, the influences of the pagan kingdom. This path of Esther that fails to make God visible to a culture who needs him, that hides the glory that he deserves, and that leaves us easy prey for the temptations of sin that pull us from the joy and delight found only in the will of our God. Now, if I could digress to two other wrong responses to living in a pagan culture. The second wrong response to living in a pagan culture would be to fall into the trap of condescension. As Christians, we ought to be profoundly humble when discussing and looking at the sin of our culture. We ought to be deeply sympathetic with the struggle that the people around us are going through as they battle the temptation to sin. When we realize that we should not be surprised or shocked at the appalling immorality or the pursuit of pleasure or the immersion in selfishness that drives those around us, for we were that person before Christ reached down and called us to himself. If we don't daily look at the sin of the culture around us, realizing that it is a picture of who we were and who we would be, apart from the grace of Christ, that he has given to us while we were completely unable to come to him, that we don't understand the gospel that we claim to follow. It is only the gospel, meaning it is only the work of Christ, that separates us from the pagan culture around us. And so if we respond, as I know I and many of us are so tempted to do, with scoffing at the foolishness of sin around us, or shaming people who would commit such acts of immorality, such pride and judgmentalism on non-Christians may not leave the name of God invisible, but it will not bring honor to the name of our Redeemer. And it will not demonstrate that we understand the gospel of the Christ that we've come to. So the second wrong response to living in a pagan culture is to, to, to scoff at the foolishness of the sin around us rather than seeking to bring the gospel and sympathy to fellow lost sinners. The third incorrect response to the pagan culture is to bemoan the wickedness, despair of success of the gospel, or complain about the liberal government or, or media or schools that are pressing their agenda. Now, if you're like me, you've probably fallen prey to this in the last several weeks. You've probably despaired, been frustrated, probably angry over a Supreme Court decision declaring what we would view as sin to be a natural uh, state for men uh, and women in our country. It may have caused some of us anxiety, frustration, anger. We might have lashed out at our government or our culture. We may have sort of resigned ourselves to the fate of living in an ungodly culture. Now, of course, it is true that God has placed key Christians in positions of leadership that require their boldness in speaking out on such political issues. And we too should long for, desire, and pray for Christ to be reflected in our country, in our laws, in our nation. 
But if we ask ourselves what God required of Esther here, in Esther chapter 2, as she lived in the citadel of Susa, surely her job was not to bring down the liberal government, to sort of cry or cry out, bemoan, write opinion articles about how awful the government was and how we ought to be turning from, from such horrible wickedness, to complain about the wickedness all around her. No, what was asked of Esther was to live faithfully. If we again think of Daniel, Daniel was not out in the streets trying to bring down an evil government. But when David li- or excuse me, when Daniel lived faithfully, the king praised the name of Daniel's God. Our first call to the culture is not to bemoan wickedness, despair the success of the gospel, or live in frustration at seeing our nation fail to respond in a godly way. Rather, our call is to live faithfully. And as we live faithfully, expressing the glory of our God and showing forth the light of our Creator, then we have hope of seeing Christ work in the hearts of people in our nation. In summary, as we seek to exemplify a correct response to living in a pagan culture, we should not avoid being obnoxious by fitting in with the culture. We should not be obnoxious by asserting a moral upper hand and looking down on the sin around us. We should not spend our time filling uh, our moments expressing dismay at political and cultural patterns we should expect from people who are without the hope of Christ. But we should make every effort to live faithfully, to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts, always being ready to give an answer to those who ask about the hope that we have. We should live in such a way that we are an aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. For to us, God has committed the ministry of reconciliation. But to return to the narrative of Esther chapter 2. Esther finds her way through the beauty contest and into the position of Queen of Persia. But little has changed for the life of Jews living in Susa. For no one knows that Esther has anything to do with God's people. The chapter ends on an equally discouraging note. For in verses 19 to 23, Mordecai, her cousin, has the good fortune of overhearing a plot to kill the king. A plot which is confirmed and Ahasuerus is saved. Now, in the ancient world, uncovering a plot to murder the king or the emperor, the political leader, comes with great rewards. It is the typical pattern that you would reward such a person for discovering a plot and turning in the people who sought to harm you. That would be a public display of reward for those who are on your side. That would be uh, an encouragement to those under your reign to submit yourself to you, to be on your side, to be uh, copying the efforts of those who are gaining rewards by supporting you as king. And yet, Mordecai goes unrewarded. Yes, Bent is listed in the Chronicles of the King, But that's small consolation for a man who is left to return outside the gate and wait upon news of his cousin queen rather than enjoying the favor and gifts of a thankful king of Persia. Even Ahasuerus, when he later reads the Chronicles in the book of Esther, asks what he did for Mordecai, not whether he had done anything for Mordecai. It seems that it was a slip, an oversight, that Mordecai doesn't receive the reward he ought to have received. 
This entire narrative again and again begs one question that should be on the forefront of our mind. Where is God? His chosen people are in exile. They are living in obscurity. They're losing their identity. They're being overlooked, assimilated in a pagan culture. Where is Yahweh, this covenant God? Has he finally and fully abandoned his people and the promise that he gave to them? After all, God's name is not mentioned once in the entire book of Esther. He seems in this narrative to be just as invisible as he was to the culture around Esther, given her lack of declaration of her God. But I believe that the name of God is never mentioned in the book of Esther deliberately. There are many places where the name of God would be perfectly natural and would fit the context of the story. But the book is purposely raising the same question that is burning on the minds of every Jew in the 5th century. Where is God? It certainly seems to every Jew in this context like events are just happening. Events are just happening. And God doesn't seem to be involved anywhere. They are in exile. Sure, they've been able to rebuild some walls and a temple, but they pale in comparison to the city and the temple that they had a few years earlier. There's no political independence. There's no restoration of fortunes like they were expecting from these promises of the prophets of God. And so literarily, it is extremely appropriate for the author of this story to ask and beg the same question that his people would be asking. It seems like God is nowhere here in this story. But the book of Esther is not a book of doubt. The book of Esther is, in fact, a resounding rejection of God's absence. Because Esther, Esther chapter 2 and the rest of the book of Esther, so clearly demonstrate that God is at work in the events of this book. Even if not mentioned by name, God is clearly and obviously orchestrating every little detail of this narrative so that he can save his people. Why did Vashti risk her position, even if to avoid a demeaning experience? What caused Ahasuerus to make the ridiculous demands on Vashti in the first place? Why did his wise men urge him to get rid of Vashti completely? Why did the young men then urge this grandiose plan of searching for all the beautiful women in the empire? Why did uh, Esther, how is it that she is living right outside the palace at the very time when this decree is made? Why is it that Esther complies and seeks the favor of all involved? And why is it that when there's 400 beautiful women, why is it that Esther is singled out? How is it that Mordecai is in the perfect place to overhear a plot of the king? How is it that he doesn't overhear the plot of the king until after Esther's queen so that she can report it to the king? And why is it? Why does Mordecai go unrewarded for his service? All of these are minute details that are integral to this story. If any one of these details happens differently than it does, then God's plan of redemption for his people does not work out the way that it does. And so, it's question after question of little details come at us, we begin to see more and more fully that though the name of God is not mentioned, God is present in every word, in every action, in every line of the story. In fact, no verse could more suitably summarize the events of this chapter of Esther and this book of Esther than Proverbs 21.1, which remind us that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. 
And Christian, I can think of few truths, few storylines that could be more comforting than this display of the trustworthy, sovereign reign of our God. Of course, the sovereignty of God is not a new or unique topic in Esther chapter 2. In fact, it will be the overarching theme of the entire story and book of Esther. This book as a whole will challenge us to trust in God's sovereignty even when we don't know what He's doing. It will challenge us to know God and to rest in His goodness and in His complete control. It will challenge us and call us to remember that as invisible as God may seem in the circumstances of your life and my life at times, God is powerfully at work in us and for us to preserve a people for Himself. But Esther 2 does challenge us to consider God's sovereignty in two particular ways. I want to look at those two particular ways tonight. First, in Esther chapter 2, we see God's sovereignty over a beautiful Jewish woman. Esther's beauty is the key to her notoriety, success, and favor in the pagan court of Ahasuerus, which means that her beauty was a key part of God's plan to preserve his people in exile. Esther, in all her beauty, was fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together in her mother's womb by our God, who had known her from all eternity and prepared for her good works from the foundation of the world. That is true of each one of us as well. Which means, this text begs of us whether we are willing to accept that the abilities, talents, skills, clumsiness, good looks, beauty, not so good looks, are not just part of who we are, but are actually specifically given to us, created in us by a God who has sovereignly planned all things for His people. One of the most devastating attacks upon our trust in God is discontentment with who He has made us to be. Here in Esther 2, Haggai leads these women in a full year, 365 days of cosmetics treatments. I can't even imagine. It would seem as if these young women need to be enhanced for an entire year, and yet we know that God has created Esther here exactly how God has planned for a particular purpose. While 365 days of cosmetics treatments may sound a bit outrageous, it's really not all that different than the message that our culture gives us today. Perhaps it's eating disorders, clothing trends, cosmetics, surgery, muscle-enhancing drugs. A constant message from our culture tells us that we need to conform ourselves to the looks and ideals of our culture. And when we take into account athleticism, memory, smarts, abilities, opportunities, are we willing to not only be content with what God has given us, but to recognize that God has made us to be someone very specific for a particular purpose in His grand plan for His people. And of course, this text also begs another question along these lines, and that is, if God has blessed you with talents, with abilities, with beauty, are we willing to use those in a way that will glorify God? Because not every way in which we use gifts that He's given us is automatically honoring to Him. Secondly, look at the final verses of this chapter. The author throws in this comment about Mordecai's role in preventing a plot against the king which goes unrewarded. Put yourself in Mordecai's shoes. You do something that deserves reward, and you don't receive the reward. 
How do you respond? Well, I know how I respond because I've responded in this way many times. Remember, uh, I was a part of a, a tennis league growing up. And I would participate in tennis leagues in each season of the year. And one winter, I signed up for a tennis league and showed up on the first day. And as a 12-year-old, much to my horror, found out that all other eight participants in the tennis league were girls. I was the only boy in the tennis league. But I consoled myself with the fact that I would obviously easily win the league and walk away with the prize of a brand new tennis racket from the pro shop. So I went through the course of the league and easily won all of my matches but one. I lost one by one point. But on the final day, first prize was given out, not to me. Second prize was given out, not to me. Third prize was given out, not to me. In fact, first and second prize were given to girls that I had crushed in the league. Well, not that I'm still bitter about it. But I didn't take up a tennis racket for ten years. I was so frustrated with what had happened in this tennis league. I went unrewarded for my good work in this tennis league. This may be a silly example of my own sin, but what about when we get passed over for a promotion? What if we lose an opportunity that we should have had? What if we're forced into early retirement or lose a job after years of service? What if as a student, an act of selfless sacrifice for another student goes unrecognized and unnoticed? What if we get bent out of shape because our spouse doesn't gush with thanks when we made a great meal for him or her or took out the trash or or something else? How many times do we find ourselves becoming frustrated or angry or getting self-righteous because we're not rewarded like we think we ought to be for a service that we've performed? We demand recognition, our justly deserved praise or reward. And yet, if you know the story of Esther, you know that if Mordecai had gone rewarded here, a key part of God's plan for saving his people would not be able to happen. In other words, Mordecai getting overlooked for his service here is an integral piece to God's plan for his people. And the same is true for us. We're willing to recognize that being passed over for a just reward is not something we should just console ourselves in because God will bring other opportunities. No, that being passed over, that moment, is a key part in God's plan in your life and in the life of his people. He is sovereign over that detail, just as he is with any other detail. See, the real issue at stake in our despair, anxiety, frustration, complaints about how God has made us or what's happening in our life is actually an issue of whether or not we truly know our God. This is the Father who sent his Son to rescue us. And as Paul asks, how could he who did not spare his own son not graciously give us all good things? We ought to conclude, as Paul concludes elsewhere, we do not lose heart. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. See, God's name may not be visible in this narrative, but God's actions, though unseen by the pagan culture, are orchestrating every detail perfectly so that God will give His people the salvation that He has promised and through that salvation prepare a people for the greater salvation in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
God's name may be invisible, but he is tangibly, eternally working out this weight of glory for his people. As we think of Esther, maybe you, like me, are thinking about moments of failure to live faithfully in our culture or to trust God like we ought to. But remember, if you remember the story of Esther, that Esther's compliance with the pagan culture here does not prevent her from making a choice of faithfulness later in this story. God's mercy forgives our failures. And we know that so much more now that Christ Jesus has died on the cross so that we see God's grace and mercy to us. Forgiving our failures. He, as John says, is our propitiation. The sacrifice to take the penalty of our sins and then give us His Spirit as we heard this morning that we might go and live faithfully in the future. So thanks be to God that even now as we confess our imperfect trust, as we repent of our lack of faithfulness to the name of our God amidst a culture that surrounds us, God's sovereign goodness was displayed most clearly in leading His own Son to the cross so that our little faith is strengthened and supported by the blood of Christ. And we can leave tonight cleansed by His forgiveness, strengthened in His might, in the knowledge of His sovereign goodness, in, around, through every detail of our lives, calling us to faithfulness, but giving us the very strength He calls us to display. Let's pray. Oh God, as we look at this story in which your name may be absent from the text, but your name and your power is so evident and present in every detail. We pray that in our lives, when your name seems to be absent, when we don't understand and can't recognize your working, we pray that we would trust your great providence and your great promises, which have been sealed to us in Christ Jesus, whom you killed on the cross but raised from the grave, that we might too have the hope of eternal life. Pray that that would spur us this week to live according to your spirit, faithfully in the culture that surrounds us, to your glory. We pray this in Christ's name.